it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, October 17th, 2022. A fresh broadcast week. Here on the Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast if you can't listen live. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, our online home. Everything you need is right there, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on both Twitter and Instagram. If you're new to the show, we're extra glad that you're here. Tell your friends, let's keep growing together. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. In fact, I'll be on TV tonight with my friend Kennedy. Fox Business Network around 7, 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. So perhaps we will see you there. We are also 22 days out from the midterm elections. And boy, a poll dropping today from the New York Times causing a lot of consternation among Democrats on the left. We will talk about all of that and more on today's program. Here's the lineup. Tom Bevan, founder of Real Clear Politics. He will be here. What a perfect guy to talk to about the polling on a poll-heavy day. That's coming up later this hour. In the next hour, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, a Republican, he will be here with his take on the news of the day. In our final hour, we welcome back to the show U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin. Important race up there in the Badger State. Johnson seems to be now maybe not in command, but in a pretty good spot against his radical opponent. We will get his reaction to some of the developments in that race. Plus, I'm sure we will get a chance to ask him about a soundbite I'm about to play for you here at the Open. Occasionally, there's a political soundbite that makes you stop or freeze in your tracks. Over the weekend, I was hanging out with friends, having a good time, and then I saw this cross my social media feed. And I actually stood, I like went off to the side, stepped away from the festivities to watch the video myself to make sure I wasn't missing some sort of context. Was it really as bad as it seemed? And it seems to me that the answer is yes. It's just as bad as it seems. President Biden, one of the few places where they're willing to send him to quote-unquote help the Democrats, is Oregon, a deep blue state where they're having some trouble. The governor's race, a couple House races as well out there. Biden, as he loves to do, stopped for ice cream. And the journos love to tell us what his order was. Right? The Woodward and Bernstein scramble into action to get us the exact order that President Biden has placed for his ice cream. And in this case, I think it was double chocolate chip, something like that, in case you're curious. So he's in Portland, Oregon, at a Baskin-Robbins, uh, not, not really a local spot. I don't know if they have a bunch of ice cream places still open in Portland. Have they been burned to the ground by Antifa? I don't know. But for some reason, he's at Baskin-Robbins, and a few reporters are asking him some questions, and they were asking him about the state of the economy, the strength of the dollar, 
and Biden said a few different things here. It's kind of tough with the audio to hear him, so try to concentrate. The key bit comes sort of in the middle of cut nine. I'm not concerned about the defense of Nevada. I'm concerned about the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Yes. Our economy is strong as hell. The internal. Inflation is worldwide. It's worse off everywhere else than it is in the United States. So the problem is the lack of economic growth. Quote, in case you couldn't hear it there, quote, our economy is strong as hell, he said. He's not worried about the strength of the dollar. He's not worried about the economy. He's worried about the rest of the world because we're so much better off than other countries. And ultimately, he said, our economy, the U.S. economy, is strong as hell. That was the way, while literally eating ice cream, like a mouthful of ice cream on camera, You've got this guy telling the country that in his brain, the economy that we're all experiencing here is strong as hell. Then took another big munch of his ice cream cone and a waffle cone. I don't know if it is possible to be more out of touch. You might remember back in 2008 during the crash, John McCain, running for president at the time, said the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are strong, but he said they're challenged right now. He had some sort of formulation like that. But, boy, the press and the Democrats beat the hell out of him for saying that the fundamentals of the U.S. economy were strong. And you could make the case that that's true. Compared to the world, fundamentally, it's a strong, resilient country with good workers, but given the free fall that was happening at the time and the widespread collapse across multiple sectors for McCain to say that the fundamentals of the economy were strong. That was in some ways a death knell for him in that election. And they were not going to let him forget it. Four years later, Mitt Romney at a private fundraiser closed door, talked about the 47%. Remember that? And they bludgeoned him with that for weeks. Well, here's Joe Biden three weeks out from this big midterm election where the right track, wrong track number is horrific, where his approval rating on the economy is underwater by nearly 20 points, where inflation is at 40-year highs. People are paying 13% more for groceries. Gas is way up from where it was when he took office. We've had back-to-back quarters of negative growth, which is a technical recession, and the experts are telling us that worse, more painful recession is likely coming. Stories today in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg talking about their review of economists overwhelmingly expecting a deeper recession and job losses within the next year. In the Bloomberg story, it was 100% of the economists they asked said that's what they expect will be coming next. So we've got a technical recession already. A poll out last month showed that roughly three out of four Americans already think we're in a recession because at least technically we are. A majority of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. A new AP poll out in the last couple of days showed a clear majority of Americans who say that their financial situation is getting worse, is deteriorating. With really dark storm clouds on the horizon. The inflation pain at some point will come down because the economy 
is getting deliberately crushed by the Fed, raising interest rates to slow down the economy, to reduce demand, to basically induce a recession, which is the extremely painful solution to high inflation, right? The antidote to high inflation, out of control, 40-year high inflation, which is what we have, is deliberate pain, more pain inflicted on the economy, which will result in things like job losses. So that is the current environment that we're living in, that the American people have been feeling now for a year. Issue after issue is just kind of one of hardship for the American people. And here's the President of the United States, who I saw today has spent roughly one out of every four days of his presidency back home in Delaware. I guess he's kind of on vacation a lot of the time. Part-time basement, uh, part-time basement president. Like one out of every four weeks of the month, the guy's in Delaware. At the beach. He's got his favorite ice cream places there. He's not feeling what the American people are feeling. I know he fancies himself this great blue-collar guy. He has been part of the elite ruling class in this country for, what, 50 years? He is detached from all of this. And I don't know if he could have advertised it any more flagrantly than by saying what he said on Saturday in Oregon. Right In bright neon lights, he basically lit up a sign that said, I'm clueless. There's this kind of cliche out there. It's been perhaps overused in recent years. Read the room. This guy is looking around trying to read the room. And his decision in reading the room is to say that the U.S. economy is, quote, strong as hell. I still can't quite believe that he's saying that, that he chose to say that. Now, I mentioned that there was this really tough poll for the Democrats in the New York Times. We'll get to that. But I want to read to you from the New York Times write-up about it. And it is quite a juxtaposition. It starts with a quote from a worker. Listen to this. Quote, it's all about cost, said Gerard Lamoureux, a 51-year-old Democratic retiree in Newtown, Connecticut, who said he is planning to vote Republican this fall. Quote, the price of gas and groceries are through the roof. I want to eat healthy, but it's cheaper for me to go to McDonald's and get a little meal than it is for me to cook dinner. So that's one paragraph in the New York Times story. From a registered Democrat who votes for Democrats, he's 51, who is now going to vote for the Republicans in November because he can't afford anything. And he is resorting to eat at McDonald's on a regular basis because that's what he can afford to do. That's the first paragraph of this little excerpt. Here's the follow-up paragraph. Mr. Biden has repeatedly tried to put on a positive spin when it comes to the economy. And has noted that inflation is a worldwide problem. Quote, our economy is strong as hell, he said Saturday at a stop at a Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop in Portland, Oregon. 
He got the Democrat voters switching parties because he can't afford anything. And then a few sentences later, the president is quoted saying the economy is strong as hell. And by the way, part of the spin that he's trying to use on this is that, oh, well, you know, uh, it's the inflation's a worldwide problem and there could be a worldwide issue and the, the lack of economic growth. Some of that is true. He does not control the entire U.S. economy. No president ever does. But he has been lying about the economy and about our relative position globally for months now. Remember this? He went on Jimmy Kimmel on the Democratic operative show on ABC back in June. This is months ago. Cut 10. We played it at the time. Here's what Biden said to his fellow Democrat Jimmy Kimmel at the time. Look, here's where we are. We have the fastest growing economy in the world, the world, the world. He repeated it three times for emphasis. The fastest growing economy in the world, the world, the world. False. In fact, when he said that, the U.S. had just had a quarter of negative economic growth, contraction. The economy shrank in the previous quarter. Since he said that, which was false at the time, the economy had a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, i.e. a recession. But he sat there on national TV in one of his rare interviews and said, we have the fastest growing economy in the world. Totally wrong. And even more wrong when the next batch of data came out. He tried to pretend that, well, yeah, inflation isn't good, but we're better off here than in the rest of the world. Also wrong. Compared to advanced economies, we were one of the worst hit by inflation in the world. And a lot of the fault for making it much worse than it needs to be lies with Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress who passed all this insane reckless spending. That their own economists were warning would be inflationary and they blew them off. And now I guess the best that President Biden has to offer is to stand there in front of the cameras, aloof, out of touch, unaware, licking his cone of ice cream and telling the American people not to believe their bank accounts, not to believe their eyes and ears, not to believe what they're experiencing and have been for quite some time, and just trust him that the U.S. economy is, quote, strong as hell. The fact that he was eating ice cream while he said it is, like, cartoonishly bad. Marie Antoinette let them eat ice cream vibes off of this president. And I would suspect, I know that we only have 22 days left until the election, but I would suspect that is a soundbite with some optics that just might be irresistible for Republican ad makers. With inflation in the economy by far the number one issue facing voters, with people deeply dissatisfied, and here's this guy munching on some ice cream and telling you, not only is it like, oh, it's okay, or it's better than people say, or it's, no, it's strong as hell, is what he said. With that ice cream cone in his hand. Cut and print those ads now. He's the leader of that party. And almost every single one of the members of that party on Capitol Hill have been saluting him every single time it matters with their votes. And that's a huge part of the reason why we're in the current mess. His spokeswoman, Corinne Jean-Pierre, today was pressed on inflation. And it was pointed out that the inflation started 
18 months ago. And she said, well, 18 months ago, the president signed the American Rescue Plan. Yeah, we know. That's part of the problem. Two trillion dollars of inflationary, wasteful spending. I don't think she meant for it to come out that way, but she's not very good at her job. She was underscoring the problem. And if they then pass the so-called Inflation Reduction Act and inflation has gotten worse, is there like a timeline for recovery? When are things going to get better? That was the question that she answered in Cut 32. Do you have a sense of when the cost savings will begin to accrue? Obviously, that's not instantaneously, but you talked about prices lowering. Is there a sense of like when that happens and over what time frame? So I don't have a timeline for you right now. Certainly, I can talk to our team to get a specific timeline. Ah, we don't have a timeline on those savings materializing from the Inflation Reduction Act. Great. And why would we need a timeline? The president just told us the economy's strong as hell. Amazing. Just getting started on The Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics coming up in the next segment. We will talk a lot about some of the polling, but since I've mentioned it and referenced it a few times, let me just give you the top line of this new survey, national survey from the New York Times and Siena. And there are heads exploding on social media on the left. This is not what they wanted to see, especially from a New York Times pollster. Republicans now in the lead on the generic 22 ballot by four points. 49 to 45 Republicans are ahead by 10 points among independents. I look back to 1994 and 2010, the Republicans won independents by double digits those years en route to major victories. They're up 10 among Indies in this poll. Joe Biden is 19 points underwater on job approval. He's at 39% approve, 58 disapprove. 45% strongly disapprove of his job performance. So his... Strong disapproval is higher than his combined approval. Not great for him. Right track, wrong track is 2464, 40 points underwater. Women now tied between Republicans and Democrats. And by far the number one issue, inflation and the economy, abortion down at 5%. So the narrative that they were shaping for a while seems to be disintegrating. We will ask Tom Bevan about it next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, our website, once again, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free when the show is over. It's on demand for all of you. Thank you for listening. 
Let's get into some of the polling more deeply with our first guest on today's program. It's Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com, at TomBevanRCP on Twitter. Tom, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Guy. All right, I want to start not with the New York Times poll that's making a big splash this morning. We will get to it, and I just gave some of the top lines in the previous segment. I want to sort of uh, hit the rewind button to, I think, two days ago, and a poll that came out from Harvard and Harris, National Survey, which, among other things, shows the Republican Party up by six points on the generic congressional ballot. Trafalgar has them up five. That New York Times poll has them up four. CBS has them up two. But this was a plus six result from Harvard-Harris. And to me, less significant than that top-line number was one of the internals. And I'm just sort of bookmarking this poll to perhaps revisit in mid-November as we're doing our post-election analysis. If it ends up being a big night for the Republicans, I think... This data point that I'm about to share with you kind of would tell the story. Who knows if it'll materialize? Uh, I'm starting to feel, from a conservative perspective, more confident about what the Republicans are going to do. But it's up to voters. We'll see what happens. But, Tom, I don't know if you saw this, but listen to this. In the Harvard-Harris poll, they asked respondents, they asked American voters, what are the top three issues that you're concerned about? And the top issues were inflation, economy, immigration in this survey. Then they asked, what issues do you think Republicans are prioritizing? And the answer was immigration, inflation, economy. It was slightly out of order, but the top three were identical to the top priorities of the overall electorate that they said they felt like that's what the Republicans were prioritizing. Then they asked, what do you think the Democratic Party is prioritizing? And the top three issues were January 6th, women's rights, and climate change. And, Tom, I think that, again, in my estimation, if November 9th we all wake up and there was a red wave, I think that disconnect, that that polling nugget suggests exists right now, that could end up proving rather explanatory. What do you make of that? Yeah, look, I mean, I've been saying this for some time. There's a... There's a partisan priority gap that's been evident in this election ever since the Dobbs decision. <clears throat> and look, parties have different priorities. That's not new. But but the way that it is so far out of whack, um, to your point, the economy inflation has been the number one issue on the minds of a majority of American voters for months, even after the Dobbs decisions. It is a higher priority among Republican voters, but it's also the priority among independent voters and and Democrats are it's like we're having two elections democrats are focused on their priority there was a quinnipiac poll from august that had inflation among democrats it was like the fifth issue behind abortion behind gun rights behind climate change uh, behind all sorts of things and so look i understand why the democrats are doing that they're running ads all across the country on abortion and that's because they are seeking to fire up their base and their strategies to try and scare independents into voting for Democrats and say Republicans are just unacceptably uh, radical on these issues. Um, and certainly you need a motivated base in a midterm election. That's, that's absolutely true. But you also need to win over the middle. You have to win over moderates, independents. And what they've done is they're not winning over independents because independents are focused on the economy issue. And, and 
it's actually even working against them because now independents look at the Democrats and think that they are completely out of touch with everyday concerns, right? They're not yep. focused on what, what those voters are. And so it's cutting both ways, and, and I think you're right. I mean you look at this data. It, again, it's been consistent for months, and I look, you know, there were these stories this morning, <clears throat> one from you know, the, the New York Times, the write-up of that poll, um, and, and there was another one in CNN. Uh, you know, the, the election's tilting towards GOP because inflation's on the mind of, of Americans, as if, as if they're just discovering this now, three <laughs> weeks before the election. It's been clear for months that this is exactly uh, where the electorate is, and Democrats are out of sync with where the electorate is. Yeah, and if they keep flogging away at abortion, as they have been for months, part of the problem that they're also running into on that, on that question is not just that it is not a top issue for most voters – it's also that the Democratic candidates themselves hold extremely radical positions on that question as well. And on the debate stage and in some of the ads, the Republicans have fought back and said, well, what my opponent supports is X, Y, and Z. And people say, oh, wow, well, I, I, don't, I don't want that. And it at least partially sort of inoculates the Republican or neutralizes the issue. Then people get back home and they see on their way home what, ga- what ga- uh, gas costs, what groceries cost, and that is by far – what is dominating their concern matrix, if you will, what they're thinking about on a daily basis as it pertains to the economy, as it pertains to politics. In that New York Times poll, Tom, they asked people for, you know, what their top issue was, and they ranked them. What's your number one issue? When you add up inflation plus economy, it's 44%. Abortion is 5%. So the Democrats have been very excited about the fact that they're running this abortion campaign and it's the number one issue for one out of 20 voters whereas the republicans in poll after poll are now in a dominant position on an issue a combined issue set inflation plus economy of almost half of all voters and i mean i'm i'm hearing these echoes back a couple weeks ago james carville warning his party saying i know what they're trying to do with with the ads that they're running and what they're trying to focus on i'm just not so sure it's going to work and it seemed like uh, he perhaps was was prescient here and and it didn't necessarily take a bunch of like political acumen to see it they just haven't wanted to hear it i guess and what this adds up to tom is i saw this tweet today from steve kornacki over at msnbc he said this is the RCP, so your generic ballot average, 22 days out from a midterm election. The Republicans are up 1.8 points, so almost two points, 1.8. And I couldn't help but notice because he also listed some of the other years in recent memory. And 2014, at this exact stage, 22 days out from that cycle eight years ago, the Republicans were up 1.8 points, exactly identical. And I went back to Check the scoreboard, and after that 2014 election, the Republicans had their biggest House majority since 1928. I think it was 247 seats they controlled after that. They also gained, netted, nine Senate seats and had a 54-46 majority after 2014. I'm not necessarily predicting either one of those numbers this cycle, but that turned out to be a very good year for the GOP 2014 and the Republicans are sitting on your average exactly where they were at this stage of, of the race at 1.8 points up on the generic ballot, I think that we shouldn't ignore that data point. No, not at all. And, and look, I think the, 
A couple things. Number one, it's not just that Republicans are are in sync with the electorate in terms of what they're talking about. It's also that, and we saw this, we see this in the data. Gallup just you know last week said <clears throat> Republicans have an 11 point advantage on who will better, who do voters trust to better handle the issue of the economy. That's the largest gap between the two parties since 1942. So in in Gallup's poll, and we've seen in other polls that Republicans have advantages on the economy, on inflation, on immigration, on crime. Democrats have big advantages, 20, 25 points on abortion, on health care. The problem is, as you mentioned, abortion is just not that salient of an issue for the, the voting population writ large. It is for a small slice of the Democratic electorate. Um, and look, I get it. I understand why they're not focusing. If you saw Michael Bennett on TV on Sunday trying to – being asked – you know, when is the Inflation Reduction Act going to actually reduce inflation? Yep. I mean, it was painful. He didn't have an answer for that. Democrats don't have an answer for that, so they don't want to talk about it. It's understandable, but... Well, in the White House, we, and factually, as a matter of fact, we have that soundbite. We might get to it later of Senator Bennett saying, oh, like, uh, look, it'll take a while for that stuff to kick in. The White House press secretary was asked about it today. What's the timeline for the cost to come down thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act? And she said, we don't have a timeline for you. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they, they don't early, want to talk about that next year. Yeah, she said early next year, which, again, that's that's not going to that's not going to cut it with the American people. And so um, so you do you do have that as to the generic ballot. Um, you know, if you look at 2010, for example, which is a huge, huge year for Republicans, that that election broke very early. I mean, it was early. It was July when Republicans got out to a lead in the generic ballot, went up to five, six points. They never looked back. If you look at 2018, which was a good year for Democrats, they were ahead in the generic ballot the entire year. Um, in, the, in the year leading up to the election, they had a, a big lead. But to your point, this is looking a lot like 2014. In 2014, Republicans, it was sort of a late breaker. It happened after Labor Day, uh, and Republicans sort of jumped out to a, a lead. And this is kind of a similar situation. It's even later, actually, because the Republicans didn't come out of Labor Day with a lead. But now we're seeing it emerge, and I think it's just the, the fundamentals of this election. When you step back and you ignore all the noise and you take a historical perspective on this, if you look at the president's job approval rating, you look at inflation, you look at the generic congressional ballot, you look at the direction of the country number, you look at all these different metrics, and it points to uh, you know, a good election season for Republicans. Now, whether that's, whether that's 10 seats, 20 seats, 40 seats in the House, or whether it's you know, a gain of, of one or two or more seats in the Senate um, will remain to be seen. And again, the map is different than 2014, certainly on the Senate side. Um, but, but again, I think just fundamentally, this is an election Republicans uh, are, are well, they're, they're well positioned to take advantage of here with three weeks left. Yep. And when I was tweeting about what Kornacki had pointed out, and I was drawing the comparison between 22 and 14, my friend Kristen Soltis Anderson, who is a Republican pollster, she replied on Twitter and she reminded me, she said, the thing about 2014 was not only did Republicans gain nine Senate seats, there were some surprises around the country. One of them being, well, first of all, I, I think a huge one being Larry Hogan in Maryland, who was down in all the polls and was supposed to lose by a lot. He ended up winning pretty dominantly in Maryland. He became a two-term governor there. Another huge surprise that didn't quite finish over the top but had a lot of people sweating bullets on election night 
was Mark Warner almost losing a Senate race to Ed Gillespie in Virginia. That was on no one's radar. So you sort of wonder, again, I'm not counting chickens. I'm not gloating. I don't know what's going to happen for sure on November 8th. But I can say if 2022 ends up looking somewhat like, resembling broadly 2014, there might be some surprises in 22 days from now. And I would guess some of those surprises would be unpleasant ones for the Democrats. I mean, looking also at this New York Times poll that I keep referencing, one of the most astounding numbers is that the Republicans are now tied among women with Democrats, 47 to 47. And a lot of that shift is because independent women who are swing voters were on the Democratic side of things, leaning Democratic back in September. And now with, I think, the fundamentals really sinking in and the economy the way that it is, independent women are now siding with Republicans by 18 points. I don't know if I believe that there was a 32-point swing in you know a month or so, but if the pendulum has swung significantly among independent women, that kind of blows up the, the game plan for Democrats to try to, to win this thing or at least stay competitive, mitigate losses, and it really blows up some of the narratives they've been driving for the last three or four months. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, I try not to focus on the, the – individuals of any one poll because you're right i mean is was it really a 32 point swing margin of error probably not um but if you if you put all that stuff in the average and you look at the average and where the trends are headed i mean it's clear that that republicans are winning the argument on the issues that matter most and that will there was another poll i just tweeted about guy you know uh, ap came out with a poll today and you look at the numbers of this was are you are you satisfied, very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, very dissatisfied, somewhat dissatisfied in, in where the country's headed right now, right? And the number was bad overall. Uh, but among Republicans it was like only six percent were very or somewhat satisfied. But independents were just as almost equally as, as sour on the direction of the country right now as Republicans, which is not typically the case. They usually fall in between Democrats and Republicans. But uh, but they seem to be pretty upset with the way things are going right now. And, and that will lead – that kind of anger, if it manifests itself on Election Day, I agree with you. Absolutely is going to lead to some, some stunning upsets that – you know, we just got a poll, uh, just to mention one, that showed the Connecticut Senate race, Richard Blumenthal, only up five points. Uh, you know, that would be – if Leora Levy wins that race, that would be a stunner. That's on nobody's radar screen right now. I mean, especially <laughs> given the fact that Richard Blumenthal is a war hero, having served in Vietnam, something he lied about uh, for years and has just been reelected over and over again. I had to get a little bit of snark in there whenever his name comes up. But, yeah, look, you know, you look at Rhode Island, some of these other races, Oregon – there's something going on out there, and if the polls and the trends hold, I think that we'll have a lot to unpack after November 8th. Very quickly, Tom, before I let you go, you made mention of this last time we were on the air together, this sort of polling accountability project that you've launched at Real Clear Politics to try to sort of highlight which pollsters do a good job and which ones don't in terms of predict- uh, predictive outcomes. Can you just like quickly summarize what you guys are doing at RCP on that front? So we're going to be rolling out in the next uh, couple of weeks a metric of, of you know, uh, ranking these pollsters and looking at the way that they've 
their accuracy. I mean, basically it comes down. We're going to measure them on, on accuracy because that's what matters. How accurate were their polls in reflecting the final outcomes of these elections? And, and so we're going to do that over the last few cycles and obviously look at what, how they perform in, in 2022 moving forward and try and introduce some accountability because they're just – the thing is, you know, again, not all the pollsters have been bad over the last three cycles. In fact, there have been a few firms that have been quite good. But there have also been some firms that have been really inaccurate. And, and you know, the media tends to focus. I mean, those some of the more inaccurate polls um, <clears throat> get as much or more media attention than than the others. And so and yet those firms turn right around and, you know, poll the next cycle as if nothing ever happened. And right. So Which this is, is an just... attempt. I mean, we really do hope it's a constructive, uh, a, a constructive thing that helps the polling industry regain some trust with the American people. I mean, honestly, as, as someone who does this for a living, I can tell you when I'm out, you know, when I'm on social media or I'm out talking to people, interacting with people. Oh, no, there's skepticism, I mean, and it's totally warranted skepticism. So I will be looking forward to that project and the rollout uh, very much in the coming weeks. Tom Bevan, we've got to leave it there, up on a break. He's the co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. Tom, thank you very much. You got it. Thank you. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We went long there with Tom Bevan. Chris Christie coming up to start the next hour. In the few moments we have left together here, I do want to just read you this headline from the Wall Street Journal because I promise we would not forget about this issue, which is still a problem. Families still struggle to find baby formula nearly one year after shortages began. Availability improves, but census data show households that use formula often have trouble finding it, and the story goes from there. Still a problem in the United States of America in 2022. Baby formula. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday edition. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free on demand every day when the show is over. We are 22 days out from the midterm elections. I'll be on Kennedy's show tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. Hope to see you there. Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour. The Dow up today, a big day on Wall Street, a gain of 553 points. The Dow surging ahead of 30,000 again. It had been beneath that for a couple days, closing at 30,188. With us now is Chris Christie. He was the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey, author of the book Republican Rescue. And, Governor, great to have you back here. Happy to be back, Guy. Thanks for having me. So I opened the show today with a monologue about something that the president said over the weekend. I will certainly ask Senator Johnson about it in the next hour as well. I wonder if this struck you the way that it struck me as just gold for the Republicans and an incredibly foolish thing for the president to say. I don't know if you saw the video of him out in Oregon with his big ice cream cone saying that the U.S. economy is, quote, strong as hell. You look at all the polling, all of it, 
The American people are not feeling that. And for him to say that at this moment, to me, almost feels like political malpractice. I don't know if he even thought through the words that he said out loud, but he said them. He sure did. And he's completely out of touch. I mean, look, that's what it shows more than anything else. You know, folks don't say stuff by mistake very often. And certainly at this point in Joe Biden's career, um, you know, when he says it, it's what he believes. It's what he feels. It's what he's trying to push. And there's not only no evidence to support it, but on top of it, it's completely out of touch with how the American people feel when they go to the supermarket and they're going to pay $6.59 for a bag of Tostitos. I mean, you know, this is out of control. Uh, People can't afford to put food on the table. They can't afford to put gas in the car to get to the supermarket. Uh, And they're suffering, and their president's eating ice cream and telling them everything's fine. Yeah, strong as hell. Not even like, eh, it's okay, it's a little mediocre, lukewarm these days, but we're going to get back there, don't you worry, Jackie, or something like that. No, strong as hell, like triumphalism about the U.S. economy right now. I just, I can't imagine being quite that tone deaf, but I guess that's Joe Biden. And you have to imagine candidates across the country see that soundbite come out over the weekend and shudder because, I mean, unless the Republicans are brain dead, that clip will end up in some ads. Oh, there's, listen, it's a combination of joy and shuddering. If you're a Republican candidate for the House, the Senate, Um, a governorship, or any other constitutional office, you're joyful. And if you're a Democrat, it just reinforces your instinct that you don't want him anywhere near your campaign in the last 22 days. You want to pretend you don't even know him unless you're in the bluest of blue districts. Uh, And so, you know, what we're seeing here is what's been displayed in the polls in the last week or two. But also, I can tell you, I've been out to five different states so far in the month of October, And I can tell you, I feel it in talking to people. Um, They are really upset. They're angry about what the government is doing, and they feel like they're on their own. And that's a bad, bad feeling to be occurring when you're the incumbent. Yep, and when you're the party in power, it's been the ruling party. Democrats control Washington for the last two years, and the numbers are what they are. We ran through a lot of them in the last hour. And you said, I mean, I think it's almost, uh, you know, inarguably true that most Democrats in close races want nothing to do with Joe Biden. They are treating him like the plague, like, oh, no, thank you. Uh, They're asked, would you campaign with him? Like, oh, who? I I don't know. The one exception seems to be later this week, John Fetterman's campaign has announced that they are going to be welcoming Joe Biden to Pennsylvania to campaign. Now, whether they're going to be appearing publicly on camera, I don't know. There's some sort of reception that they're holding together. But that race just across the river from Jersey uh, is is certainly an interesting one. Dr. Oz has closed the gap pretty dramatically. The polls suggest he's still slightly behind, but both campaigns are acting like that race is tied. Uh, It's been interesting to see how the media is covering it, the controversy over Fetterman's health, his own record and, and statements are, are pretty dramatic, and now he's bringing in Joe Biden. I just wonder what you make of what's happening in PA right now. Well, I can tell you, I was on the ground in PA last week at the um, dinner for the Chamber of Business and Industry. 3,000 people at this dinner. And let me tell you this. Dr. Oz was there. He was invited. He came, and he was interviewed by the head of the chamber. 
Fetterman was invited and refused to show up. And I could tell you that the buzz in that room that night was why Fetterman isn't there. Statewide candidate for the United States Senate. And everybody knows it's because he's physically and mentally not up to it. And if you saw that interview on NBC, which I'm sure you did, Guy, it's, yep. it's tragic. The man, you know, suffered a horrible stroke. I hope that he recovers someday. But he's not going to be recovered in time for November. And he has no business, in my view, purely from a physical health perspective. Put aside his awful record. From a physical health perspective, he has no business being in the United States Senate. And so Joe Biden going there and shuffling up to the, uh, to the podium uh, is not going to be helping Fetterman in any way. And, and I think this race is moving in that direction towards Oz for two reasons. Dr. Oz is now focusing like a laser on the issue of crime in Pennsylvania, which is rampant in the city of Philadelphia. And people are feeling it in those Philly suburbs and are worried. And John Fetterman is showing every day that he's simply not up to the job. Let's talk about New Jersey politics, you know, statewide, often tough for Republicans. Not always. You know, you won there twice. And Jack Chitterelli gave him a real scare a year ago. But there are some very important House races in New Jersey this cycle. And you're starting to see the numbers move back toward Republicans. The New York Times poll today, uh, you know, real trouble ahead potentially here for Democrats. As you look at the congressional map in, in Jersey, what are the races that you're concentrating on? And, you know, those you know, East Coast, right, these races, these cl- these polls close relatively early. Which are the ones you'll be watching maybe as some national bellwethers in your state? There's two. Uh, Congressional District 7, Tom King Jr., it's a rematch from 2020. He lost by a couple of thousand votes to Tom Malinowski um, and, and the Democrat. I think Tom King Jr. will win this race this time. And I think if he does, you'll see that's a real good Republican trend. And the one to keep your eye on as a potential surprise guy is down in Congressional District 3. Andy Kim, the Democrat, kind of a nondescript Pelosi rubber stamping Democrat against the young uh, entrepreneur Bob Healy from the Viking Yacht Company. They're putting some of his own money into the race and has run a very aggressive race, again, on the issue of crime and, and how difficult the crime situation has become, not only in New Jersey, but across the country. And then one I would say to you to look from outside of New Jersey, and I'm going to be watching closely. I campaigned there last week. Alan Fung in the 2nd Congressional District in Rhode Island. Yeah. Boston Globe poll last week shows him up by eight points. Um, I think this is a huge one. And to have a Rhode Island Republican congressman will tell you a lot about what the trend is in this country. So you think when you see him plus eight in that race in you know, one poll, I saw another poll had him up six. You think that's real? You think that's, that's a winnable seat in Rhode Island? I do. And I will tell you, interestingly, I campaigned in three different areas of Rhode Island with him last Monday on Columbus Day. But most interestingly, Guy, at the Columbus Day Festival. Hey, hang on. Are, are there even Providence. are there three, Governor, are there three different areas of Rhode Island? <laughs> there are. There are. I'll tell you that I was in Cranston. <laughs> I was in Providence um, and, and I was at an art festival in um, in another part of the state. And I can tell you in Providence, which is hardly a Republican stronghold, I campaigned at the Columbus Day Festival with Alan Fung. And the reaction was really positive. They know him. They like the campaign he's running. He's running a smart, common sense campaign. And you know who his opponent is? 
a guy named Seth Magaziner. If the name sounds familiar, it's the son of Ira Magaziner, the uh, the guy who put up together Hillary Care in the mid-'90s. His son's running for that House seat. Huh. And I can tell you, Magaziner is running purely on the abortion issue. That's it. And Alan Fung is running on the economy and crime and parental involvement in their children's education. And he's up by eight points, according to the Boston Globe. And I can tell you from being on the ground, Alan, Alan Fung looks like a winner to me, Guy. And if he is, it's going to be a big night for the Republicans in the House. Now we're 22 days away from finding out if you're right, but that is definitely one to watch up in New England of all places. Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, a Republican. Always great to talk to you, Governor. We'll talk again soon. Looking forward to it, Guy. Thanks for having me. Likewise. And the Guy Benson Show continues much more to get to on the other side of this break. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. A couple months back on this show, we read to you a few stories going after the HHS secretary, Javier Becerra. The knives were out for him within the Biden administration. They were upset with the monkeypox response, which was awful initially, and it was just a huge mess and another black eye for the government. Totally inept. And the scapegoat that they were mad at was their own HHS secretary. So they were whispering to reporters and throwing him under the bus. Oh, he's a disengaged. He doesn't know what he's doing. This was one of a number of stories to that effect about Becerra. And we said, well, yeah, he's a lawyer and a lifetime politician, right? He's a career politician with a law degree with no public health experience. The only reason they admit this, the only reason he was nominated to the health secretary position in the middle of a pandemic, the response to which is probably the number one issue why Joe Biden won in the first place, was because of his skin color. Again, I'm not making this up. They said it. It was widely reported at the time. There were activists and members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus who were angry that there wasn't enough representation of what they might call Latinx individuals or brown people. That's the other term that they like in the Biden government and cabinet. So they're like, all right, let's just go grab one. Oh, yeah, Becerra. We've heard of him. Javier Becerra, that's a name that sounds pretty Latinx. Let's make him health secretary in the middle of a pandemic. So they did. All the Democrats voted to confirm him, totally unqualified in every way, which would be bad enough under any circumstances in the middle of a pandemic. Seems extra bad to me. And then when he was, in fact, incompetent, incapable, not qualified, And that started to play out not just on COVID issues, but also on monkeypox. Then all of a sudden they said, how can we blame him? It's never the fault of the president who picks these people, or, you know, if he does, the the brain trust around Joe Biden saying, you know, we got to do the diversity thing. Look at the celebration of diversity. It doesn't really matter what qualifications are. That's secondary. That's tertiary. So they planted these stories going after Javier Becerra. Notice they never got around to getting rid of him or firing him. Biden never fires anyone for their failures. Instead, they just whimper and they complain and they whine to journalists as this sort of punt exercise, buck passing. It's actually really pathetic. Well, the latest example of this comes on the border crisis, where I guess they need 
someone to blame for the historic crisis that they have created with their policies, and they've landed on the head of Border Patrol. That's who they're going to blame. So they're going after this guy. Politico has a story on it. And listen to this. I'll read from it. As migrant encounters along the southern border continue to set records, frustration is mounting inside the Biden administration with the head of Customs and Border Protection. Well, frustration should be mounting with themselves, with their policies, with the Secretary of Homeland Security. That's who's really fundamentally at fault. But, the story goes on, five current administration officials who work with CBP and Commissioner Chris Magnus portrayed him as unengaged in his job, saying he often doesn't attend White House meetings on the situation on the border. Badmouths other agencies to colleagues and superiors, has not built relationships within CBP and across other agencies. They complain he's unfamiliar with some of the operations of CBP, instead focused primarily on reforming the culture of the Border Patrol, addressing a long list of allegations of racism and violence. So he's focused on sort of, you know, woke perceptions, not operations, and he's not easy to work with, and he's truant when it comes to meetings. Here's one quote from the story. He's not in the game, said one official. Every time there's a meeting and he's in it, We'll get to a conclusion, and Magnus will have some sidebar issue that he wants to raise. And we're all like, what the bleep is that about? Magnus has also made the case that his critics were either unfair or uninformed about him. Six of those internal critics, for example, remarked to Politico they had seen Magnus fall asleep during multiple meetings. He's saying, well, that's because I take medication for MS, so sometimes I get tired as a result of that. All of this squabbling and finger-pointing back and forth, oh, we're frustrated. He doesn't show up for meetings. We've seen him fall asleep. He's like, well, that's because I'm taking medication. It is just a giant circular firing squad ignoring the actual root of the problem, the root causes, as the vice president likes to say. Of course, he's wrong about what those root causes are. The root cause, singular, is the Biden administration's policy. This guy, leading CBP, could literally be like a bear in hibernation for months on end, never attend a single meeting. It wouldn't change a damn thing because the policies are what they are. I don't know whether they're being overly unfair to this person. I know very little about him. I think the fact that he is literally asleep at the switch sometimes amid the worst border crisis in history, and he's the guy in charge of Border Patrol, that seems at least symbolic. But it reminds me, as I said, of the Becerra stuff. Oh, he's disengaged. He's not getting it done. The finger pointing. Well, you put him in charge, and you didn't fire him. Now, this guy's been in charge for how long? It's not like the border crisis started a few weeks ago. It's been raging the entire presidency. It's starting to bite them. In the rear end, politically, they're like, oh, let's find someone to attack, and it's him. I guess he's sleeping through meetings. Becerra has no idea what he's doing. Totally unqualified as health secretary during a pandemic. The president's out there licking an ice cream cone, saying the economy's strong as hell. We're in the very best of hands, aren't we? And if you're three weeks out from a midterm election, and the White House is planting more hit pieces on some of their own people, with no actual accountability, by the way, it doesn't seem like they're in a particularly great spot. And once again, they are absolutely allergic to accountability. 
which is why I keep saying and will continue to say for the next 22 days, the only way accountability will be visited upon this ruling party is if voters do it at the ballot box on November the 8th. Now, one of the states with the highest stakes when it comes to this election and accountability is Georgia, where I just got back from last week. There was a debate Friday night between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, and it went, I think, not the way a lot of people were expecting, myself included, I'll admit. We will break all of that down in detail as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Just halfway through today's program. Glad to have you all here on board. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. So last time you and I were together was on Friday. And I mentioned on that show, and we also talked about it leading up to Friday, that that evening was going to feature the one and only Senate debate down in Georgia. We're doing the show from Atlanta. A lot of discussion about how Herschel Walker was going to perform on Friday night. And I was speaking to Republicans who were all pretty nervous about it. They were expecting Raphael Warnock, who is a gifted communicator, a senator, a pastor. I think he's not honest. I think he's duplicitous. I think his voting record is terrible. But a debate-type format absolutely favored Warnock as opposed to Walker. And as I've been saying, what Walker had to do, even before all the baggage started coming out and some of the accusations and the denials and some of that, what Walker had to do was be a plausible senator, someone who had to clear a relatively low bar, show that he knew his stuff enough, that he wasn't just woefully unprepared for the job, someone who could maybe make some wavering Republicans or centrists and independents who were getting ready to vote for Brian Kemp for governor – might be wavering, saying, I, you know, I don't really know if I can really pull the lever for Herschel. Maybe I'll split my ticket for Warnock. Maybe I'll just leave it blank or write someone in or vote for the Libertarian or something. I'm not necessarily feeling great. I'm a little queasy about the Senate race. He had to get some sort of critical mass of those people, the potential waverers, if you will, back on side to have more down-the-ticket Republican votes. And I've been talking about the governor's race, because I think if Brian Kemp can win relatively big, let's say by seven, eight, maybe nine points, which seems at least plausible right now, that would require a lot of ticket splitting, especially if it's a big night for the Republicans overall. We've been talking about the new polling and sort of the fundamentals of this race seemingly back in the driver's seat. It would take a lot of ticket splitting to save Raphael Warnock. Is it possible? Yeah. But a big Kemp win, plus an environment favoring the Republicans, Herschel Walker really should have a chance. And he could help himself, the thinking went, with a decent, sort of acceptable performance in the debate on Friday night. And what's amazing is the consensus coming out of that debate is that Walker not only did what he needed to do, he actually won. And I understand partisans are going to spin no matter what. 
They're going to see what they want to see in a lot of cases, and they'll say, oh, my guy won the debate. Like I saw a press release where Rick Scott, the NRSC chairman, said, this is a debate victory for Herschel Walker, and you can just sort of discount that because the DSCC is saying the same thing about Warnock. I think the tell is the stream of reaction we saw from Democrats and from journalists who often lean left who were sort of panicking or forced to admit that Herschel Walker did a lot better than people were expecting, which means that he won. And now there's some headaches coming out of that debate for Raphael Warnock as well. Like, for example, today, I saw this on The View, which I don't monitor carefully, but people were talking about it on social media. Apparently there was a fight on set, a disagreement between Sonny Hostin and Ana Navarro, who are both committed leftists, about whether or not Herschel Walker had done well. Sonny was arguing, lamenting, that Walker had done well. Ana Navarro disagreed, but it emerged that Sonny had watched the debate. Ana had not. So she was upset that Herschel Walker had done well. She actually watched the thing. I saw that there was a prominent Democrat in the state of Georgia who was tweeting after the debate, oh, it's not really important to talk about who won the debate, per se, or who managed or beat or fell short of expectations. That's all a waste of time. We should talk about fitness. Who is fit to serve in the U.S. Senate? When you have your fellow partisans, in this case Democrats, for Raphael Warnock saying, oh, let's pish posh, let's not discuss who won, I think that tells you everything you need to know about who won. Greg Bluestein over at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he quoted a Democratic strategist in his story about the debate saying, quote, Herschel Walker had one mission tonight, make Kemp Republicans comfortable with him and stop ticket splitting. It feels like he did that. Again, that's a Democratic strategist making that point. So I think people recognize what happened. Herschel was ready. He did some game prep. He put expectations on the floor. You had him rattled by all of these allegations, and I'm not sure he's really handled those and responded to those terribly well or persuasively, in my view, in my estimation. I've made that point already. But he came across, I think the general overall agreement was, as sort of more likable, more genuine, whereas Raphael Warnock was slippery, evasive constantly calculating every answer. He didn't want to talk about Joe Biden in 2024. He was hedging on whether the Braves should keep their name in Major League Baseball. And given all the baggage and context there, what happened to the All-Star game in Atlanta, to sort of remind people of your own wokeness on the sports front, I'm not really sure that's helpful. Herschel was actually pretty quick on his feet a few different times. Not the way that he's famous for being quick on his feet, literally, but in terms of rhetoric and responding in a debate setting – And given what has all been thrown in his direction, it's almost jaw-dropping to say, but he scored some major points, I would say, on abortion on that issue over the course of the debate. But I think it became clear right out of the gate, opening statements, that Herschel was there to play. He was ready. And look, you can memorize an opening statement and have a pretty good open and close, but if you're a mess in between and you can't handle the give and take, then, you know, it's not going to work out. But he did. He was fine. He was pressing the case. He was defending himself, pivoting to the attack. But his opening statement reflected the theme that he went after over and over and over again, which is Raphael Warnock is tied, handcuffed, shackled to Joe Biden and a failing Democratic agenda 
that Raphael Warnock has voted for 96% of the time. In a moderate, bluish state, Raphael Warnock is a rubber stamp for Chuck Schumer and for Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is not popular in the state of Georgia. So in Cut 19, here's how Herschel Walker opened, and then he sounded this same theme over and over again over the course of the evening. Listen. I'm one of seven kids, born and raised in Wrightsville, Georgia. My parents taught me about faith, family, education, and the love of country. They also taught me about a good work ethic. And because of that, I found the America's dream. But this race ain't about me. It's about what Raphael Warnock and Joe Biden had done to you and your family. Tonight, he's going to try to sweet talk you that he's doing a good job, but his record speaks for itself. I'm here to tell you that they've raised your taxes, gave you high inflation. They even put men in women's sports. And I want to let you know that Raphael Warnock, we give him six more years, think what he's going to do. So I'm here to fix it. That's the essence of the race. I want to go in a different direction. Raphael Warnock backs Joe Biden virtually every time. The race isn't about me. It's about what they have done to the country. And he just pounded away at that all night long. And there wasn't a good answer from Warnock. I saw at a rally, I believe yesterday, the next day, Herschel Walker showed up and he held up this football jersey that they had made. And on the front of the jersey, it says Team Biden. And on the back of the jersey, it says Warnock. And then it's number 96 for 96% of the time. And the crowd was, you know, booing, but also laughing at the point being made. And Walker was just using that as an anchor tied around the feet of Senator Warnock. But that wasn't the only headache for Senator Warnock that exploded during the debate. There's a new controversy that he's being forced to address. We'll tell you all about that. It could be potentially a game changer. Details next. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we're talking about one of the most important races in the country, the Georgia Senate race. Now, another issue that came up during the debate is something that Warnock hasn't really had to deal with up until that point. His answers have been weak on it. I referenced it briefly on last week's shows when I was down in Georgia. Let me just read to you from a recent story written in the Washington Free Beacon. It starts with a quote from Warnock himself back in August of 2020. He tweeted, quote, unemployment benefits have expired. Rent is due today. And many Georgia families are at risk of eviction in the middle of a pandemic. That was Warnock's tweet when he was running for Senate back in 2020. He was charging that by failing to act, his political opponents were, quote, clearly only concerned with serving their own interests. The story says it may be good political rhetoric, but Warnock's Ebenezer Baptist Church, where the senator serves as senior pastor, drawing a salary as well as a generous $7,417 monthly housing allowance, has moved to evict disadvantaged residents from an apartment building it owns, one of whom it tried to push out on an account of merely $28.55 in past due rent. So Warnock's church is the 99% owner of a place called the Columbia Tower at MLK Village, downtown Atlanta. And the Washington Free Beacon obtained documents showing that this is a place described 
as a home for the chronically homeless and people with mental disabilities. And yet, during the pandemic, a dozen eviction lawsuits were filed against residents by the church, by the owners of this facility, this building, over the course of two years. Quote, the sum total of past due rent cited in the lawsuits is just $4,900. All of it combined. All of the past due rents that they were using to try to evict these poor, underprivileged, chronically homeless, and mentally ill people. You add it all up. They were short less than $5,000. And they were trying to get a dozen people evicted because of those shortcomings. That number, $4,900, is, quote, a figure that could have been covered by one of Warnock's monthly housing stipends from the church. I mean, Warnock was getting almost $7,500 a month as the pastor of this church just for housing. That is extremely generous. He could have written one check for a fraction of that total number and covered all the past due rent, but instead this church was going through and trying to evict these people. While out there, the compassionate pastor is talking about evictions and hardship during the pandemic, and then look at what his church was up to. The story says, The revolutions threatened to undermine Warnock's efforts to cast himself as an ally of struggling Georgians working to meet rent in the face of pandemic-era challenges. Yeah, no kidding. He was evicting these people. They quote one of the residents in the story saying, quote, They treat me like a piece of bleep. They are not compassionate at all. 69-year-old African-American Vietnam veteran. He received an eviction notice on September 20th for a failure to meet a $192 rent payment. So Warnock was confronted about this at the debate. He claimed that no one was evicted from this building. And Andrew Kerr of the Washington Free Beacon, the journalist here, says it simply isn't true. And he has receipts. He has court documents. He has paperwork showing that this stuff happened he says it's all a public record and that warnock is lying and during the debate herschel walker who warnock accused of trying to like sully the church and sully the reputation and this was mlk's church and how dare you and herschel walker said look i didn't write it i didn't write this story It was in the paper. It was in the Washington Free Beacon. There was a story about it in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's like, I didn't write it. It was in the paper. Warnock is claiming it's not true. The documents prove otherwise. And so I find it interesting. There was a big national feeding frenzy when the abortion allegations came out against Herschel Walker. And the heavy emphasis was what? Hypocrisy and deceit. He's lying about it. He's not telling the truth. And what a hypocrite. He says on the campaign trail, he's for this on abortion, but look at what he's been accused of doing in his own private life. Well, wouldn't this story, the eviction story, be the equivalent of that for Pastor Compassion? The Reverend Warnock. He's talking about the least of these and all this assistance that people need. And isn't it horrible that anyone was evicted during the big pandemic and people need help and the government needs to help. Meanwhile, his church is engaged in legal battles to try to throw indigent, mentally ill people out of their housing over, in some cases, past due rent as little as $29. While he's living large, 7,500 bucks a month, that's his housing stipend from his church. 
And then when he's asked about it, it looks very much like he is flagrantly lying about it. That would be hypocrisy plus deceit. Strangely, this does not seem to be a huge national story in that Senate race down there. I haven't seen Saturday Night Live making jokes about it, even though they're going after Herschel Walker apparently every week on that show. So I'll just say I'm surprised, as any of you, to learn, and I was out at dinner and having a few drinks, so I did not watch the debate as it unfolded. We were talking about it at dinner, and some of the nervous conservatives I was eating with, they were like, hey, does anyone have a beat on this? How'd it go? What are people saying? So I logged on, I started scrolling through, and I wasn't just interested in what conservatives were saying, because that could be slanted and biased one way. I started seeing this other series of quotes and assessments from people who were clearly going to be rooting for Warnock. And I said, wow, I think this actually might have gone pretty well for Herschel. Started watching some of the clips of big exchanges being tweeted out in the media. And it's like, holy cow, game on. I think that the momentum in this race might have just shifted back. Oh, one more point coming out of Georgia. I did see that earlier today, Raphael Warnock went and voted early. Voting for himself, I'm sure Stacey Abrams as well, voting the Democratic ticket to highlight that early voting has started in the state of Georgia. One of 17 days of required early voting, including at least two Saturdays of early voting. That's under the new election law that Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams in particular and President Biden smeared as worse than Jim Crow. Voter suppression. Of course, it's nothing of the sort. We saw massive increases in voting participation in the primary. Record shattered. It was a total lie and a disgusting racial smear from these demagogues. But I just find it sort of amusing that the mere act of Warnock showing up today to say, all right, everyone, early voting has started. It's October 17th. You get 17 days of early voting in Georgia. Whereas in New York, in New Jersey, in Delaware, any number of blue states, that hasn't started yet. In fact, there has been no early voting, like no excuse absentee early voting in some of these places ever. They're all sort of trying to catch up now. But the voter suppression, quote unquote, is already underway in the Peach State, underscoring yet again the lies that they told about the new election reforms. So I think anyone who was writing off that Georgia Senate race after the last couple of weeks, I said I didn't think it was good, it wasn't helpful. I said I'm not sure that's over. Now I would argue it absolutely isn't over. This is a dogfight over the next 22 days. And if Herschel was perhaps knocking himself a little bit out of the game, he vaulted himself right back into it on Friday night ahead of the final sprint. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Stay tuned. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Monday on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, that last hour, 5 to 6 Eastern, is the happy hour. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, great for the fall, really year-round. 
and they have expanded all across the country. They are really growing in many states, including Wisconsin, which is going to be a relevant comment in just a moment. But log on to thelongdrink.com. You can find out more about where they're sold near you. You can order online, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Please and thank you. Our website here at the show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand, no charge to you. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. And I'm looking forward to that chat, as I always do with my friend over on the TV side. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Lots of goodies and extra content available there as well. Well, I made the Wisconsin reference because... Our next guest is a U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, up for re-election in 22 days, joins us once again. Senator, it's good to have you back. Well, Guy, I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. I have to get your reaction right off the top to something that President Biden said over the weekend. He was out on the campaign trail. He's not doing a lot of campaigning for Democrats who don't really want to be seen with him for the most part, but he's done a few. And on one of the stops, he grabbed... An ice cream cone, and in between licks, he was asked by a reporter about the economy, and he had to say, cut nine, listen to this. I'm not concerned about the defense of the I'm concerned about the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Yes. Our economy is strong as hell. The internal. Inflation is worldwide. It's worse off everywhere else than it is in the United States. So the problem is the lack of... So not the best sound quality there, Senator, but the highlight was, quote, our economy is strong as hell, he said, talking about the U.S. economy, said really all the problems are global problems that aren't his fault, I'm paraphrasing, and they're worse in other countries. When you hear the president say these things and make those assertions, particularly the strong as hell characterization of the current U.S. economy, what do you say? How do you react to that? Well, he's obviously detached. He's delusional. He obviously doesn't uh, fill up his tank with gas. He doesn't uh, try and fill up his grocery cart with groceries. Remember, he's he's in charge of the administration who denies there's a crisis at the border. Uh, you know, they say it's a challenge. So Democrats and, let's face it, President Biden's their leader. They're as detached from reality as they are from the truth. Because certainly during these campaigns, all they've been doing is lying They've been distorting what uh, people like me say. They've been assassinating my character because they can't defend their record. Uh, you know, 40-year high inflation, uh, record gas prices, uh, an open border flood of deadly drugs, skyrocketing crime. They can't defend that record. They've got nothing other than hollow left-wing rhetoric and lies. So he's, he's and let's face it, he, he's, a, he's a known liar. How many times he tell the American public that he never talked to his son, Hunter, about his, about his overseas business connections? We have piece of evidence after piece of evidence that's, that was a complete, bold-faced lie. Meanwhile, and relatedly, a bill that was passed by the Democrats just a few months ago at this point, and they had a big celebratory event at the White House on a day that horrible inflation numbers came out. So that was sort of unfortunate timing for them. But they called that bill the Inflation Reduction Act which even Bernie Sanders has admitted really did very little to deal with inflation. It was much more about spending on green energy and other priorities, of course, doubling the size of the IRS. That was one of the big features of that bill. Every Republican voted against it, but they had just enough votes to get it over the finish line with the tie-breaking vote coming from the vice president. 
You, of course, voted no, along with all of your Republican colleagues. One of the senators who voted yes is Michael Bennett from Colorado. He's up for reelection in his state this year. He was asked on CNN yesterday about the Inflation Reduction Act and how inflation has only gotten worse since it was passed. He was challenged on that. And in cut one, he sort of tried to explain why. Why isn't the Inflation Reduction Act reducing inflation? Well, because the elements of the Inflation Reduction Act aren't going to kick in for a while, Dana. Senator, when you hear that, they say, okay, we're going to call this thing, slap a label on it, Inflation Reduction Act. There's a lot more spending. Inflation gets worse. The expectation is the Fed is going to have to kill it with fire, which is going to really hurt the economy. Are they going to just wait for months, and then when it finally comes down, as we enter a deeper recession, they're going to say, oh, now the bill is working? I just wonder how many Americans actually believe this spin. Well, first of all, what they're going to do is they know they're probably going to lose Congress. And I've already heard President Biden start setting up Republicans for being blamed for the inflation they caused. But this is what Democrats do. I mean, they, they name these bills you know, in Orwellian fashion, like the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act that didn't protect patients, didn't make care more affordable, or the Inflation Reduction Act. And unfortunately, our biased media uh, buys into it. Uh, they report the uh, Inflation Reduction Act as a bill now the landmark piece of legislation is going to reduce inflation. It's going to cure climate change. No, it's going to spend $369 billion of money that we don't have. This is going to further mortgage our kids' future. It'll exacerbate inflation, and it won't do anything to address climate change. It'll just provide corporate welfare to the Al Gores of the world. Uh, but that's who Democrats are. I want to ask you an economic question based on your background as a business guy, which is how you spent the vast majority of your career before you got into politics, ran for the Senate and won in 2010. A listener to the show wrote me a note earlier. He's one of your constituents from Wisconsin. His name is Michael, and he owns a furniture store in your state. And here's what he wrote to me. He said, hey, guy, I've been watching all the reports about the slowing economy. Let me give you an example. I own a furniture store, and if you ordered a sofa pre-pandemic, it took – eight to 10 weeks. Last January, it was eight months. Today, it's only 10 days. There are no orders coming in. It's very scary. It kind of puts things in perspective. When newscasters talk about the recession, examples like this would really resonate. He said, and that sofa that I would sell two years ago cost $2,100. Now it's almost $2,800. Freight for that sofa used to be 120 bucks. Now it's 220 bucks. He says his store is in Wisconsin. His manufacturer is in North Carolina. He's just saying, at least in his little corner of the universe, he is seeing some blinking red lights on deeper recession moving forward, demand coming down, even with this inflation still running hot. Based on your business background and acumen, do you think that story is an outlier? What do you make of that and the overall trajectory of the economy right now? Oh, Guy, I've been predicting stagflation since early 2021. When the Democrats passed their partisan $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, $700 billion would have been spent to fire out until 2028. And I made that prediction because I was talking to business people in Wisconsin. And I started my business during stagflation, the end of 79, early 80s, when price increases were uh, not only expected, but they were readily accepted. And the same thing started happening after you know the beginning of 2021. And so I knew inflation would be sparked by this massive deficit spending. And, of course, when inflation takes off, a dollar that you held at the beginning of the Biden administration is now only worth 88.3 cents. So people can't afford to buy things. 
people, their consumer confidence plummets. Um, so it, it is not surprising whatsoever. And I've been warning people that this is a very difficult spiral to break when employers can't hire enough people. So they keep driving wages higher, which sounds good, but wages aren't even beginning to keep up with Biden's inflation. So, no, we're, we're in for a really rough ride, which is exactly why Biden is trying to set Republicans up to be blamed for his inflation, for his recession. Well, I mean, again, I think it's pretty feeble to try to do that. I don't think the American people are buying it. They certainly know that more of the same full Democrat control of everything is not the way to go, which is why it looks like the House is poised to tip to the Republicans and the Senate could as well. The only way that happens is if guys like you win re-election. You know, Ohio, got to hold that seat, North Carolina, Florida, Wisconsin, big, big races, all of them. Can't afford to lose any one of those. And since we last spoke, when you were already on the upswing in terms of polling, it seems like your prospects have only brightened further. I almost fell out of my chair last week when I saw Marquette poll had you up six. That's uncharted territory for you, certainly, in that poll. It kind of seems like the people of Wisconsin, number one, aren't enchanted with what they're seeing from the Biden administration, and two, really aren't enchanted with what they're seeing and learning about your opponent, Mandela Barnes, whose record and words and rhetoric have been spotlighted over the last couple of weeks, and he's, he's tanking it, it looks like. Well, first of all, I always assume these races are going to be dead even, so that's how I'm running this race. But I think uh, probably the polls have turned around because we've now been able to tell the truth about Mandela Barnes. Our difficult uh, difficulties, we don't have the media on our side. The media amplifies their lies. So we do need funds. So Ron Johnson from Senate.com, so we can keep telling the truth about Mandela Barnes. But, but here's some truths. Uh, he said that the founding of America was awful. He and uh, Governor Evers, their goal was to reduce our prison population by 50 percent. It's already been reduced 15 percent, including 784 Violent criminals that they paroled, including 44 child rapists and 270 criminals who either committed, primarily committed or attempted murder. And they were horrific murders. And now we find out that as a member of our state assembly, he went on Russia Today TV at least six times, days following the Dallas shooting of those five police officers and, and basically rationalized the shootings. Uh, you know, and, and just playing right into Vladimir Putin's hands, allowing himself to be utilized as a tool of Vladimir Putin's propaganda. So, you know, we're at least able to get the truth out. Again, no help from the media, help from talk radio, but no help from the media. Um, and we, we've uh, used RonJohnsonSenate.com to raise the funds so we can get the truth out about Mandela Barnes. I want to come back to Barnes and his record. But since you mentioned the media a few times there, I'm sure you've seen this, Senator. I haven't seen if you've reacted to it. But the New York Times, in the preview of your most recent debate, this is how they set it up in their little introductory paragraph as they were getting ready to cover that debate. Quote, Senator Johnson, a leading peddler of misinformation, will debate the Lieutenant Governor Barnes, a liberal Democrat who has been touted as one of the party's rising stars. End quote. Just straight down the middle journalism, Senator. Yeah, just a prime example of how unbiased our media is. <laughs> no, you know, guy, if, if in a sane world with an unbiased media, these Senate races wouldn't even be close. Democrats wouldn't have a chance. This would be a tsunami. But we have a highly biased media, as uh, that example proves. Uh, but, you know, they, they throw around these pejoratives like uh, purveyor of mis misinformation. I keep asking him, tell me one thing I've said that wasn't true. You know, Hunter Biden, he is corrupt. You know, his laptop, laptop actually was genuine. 
you know, that was Chuck Grassley in my report that laid out the fast web financial entanglements. And I would argue, you know, all the information I've tried to provide people during COVID, uh, there's not been one thing I've said that was not true. Um, as much as the folks of the world haven't liked the comparisons I've been making, the information I've been given to people so they can make an informed, informed choice. On Mandela Barnes, just to come back to him to close things out, one thing that struck me, and I was asked about your race on TV last week on Fox, and we were talking about your race and uh, the the race in Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman is similarly nuts on criminal justice issues uh, compared to your opponent. They're sort of peas in a pod. And one of the comments that I made was they were showing snippets of Democratic ads where they're trying to push back on this notion that they're soft on crime or even pro-criminal in some ways. And Mandela Barnes is trying to say, oh, they're distorting my record. You know, I believe in more funding for the police and all of that. Essentially ignore everything that I've said, ignore almost all of my record. And at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, Senator, based on my recollection here, as of last month, the Barnes campaign could not find a single law enforcement officer in the entire state of Wisconsin on active duty, someone serving right now in law enforcement. There's what, 13,000-plus of them in the state, they couldn't find one of them to endorse Mandela Barnes in this election. That, to me, seems like it speaks volumes on this question. It does, yeah. They tried to endorse him supposedly of nine, seven retired, two active duty. The two active duty officers came out and said, we never endorsed him. But it's because when he went on Russia Today, Again, this after the horrific shooting of those five Dallas police officers, he said these police officers are over-exercising their badges. They've turned their badges into a license to bully. This probably was a retaliatory attack. I mean, when police officers hear that, when, when they hear how hostile someone like Mandela Barnes is to their profession, saying that uh, if he wants to reallocate, he uses the code word, he wants to reallocate over-bloated police budgets, it pains him to see a fully-funded police budget. Uh, Law enforcement understands who's, who is their friend and who isn't. I've been endorsed by uh, individuals as well as uh, associations totaling up to almost 5,000 of Wisconsin active duty law enforcement. So I think it's pretty obvious who law enforcement supports and who supports law enforcement. Yeah, 5,000 to zero uh, is, seems like a blowout to me, at least in that category. And for him to say what he said is bad enough. For him to say what he said on Russian propaganda TV then lamenting Russian propaganda a few years later when it was politically expedient to take shots at Trump. I mean, the, the whole thing is such an awful look for him, and that probably explains why the polls have moved steadily in your direction. I understand you have to call this a jump ball, and often in Wisconsin it is. comes down to turnout. There's a very close governor's race, as you know, out there. But it seems like Mandela Barnes, uh, perhaps people are starting to see him for who he is. And if that's the case... I think that you will win, at least by Wisconsin standards, relatively comfortably. But people have to show up and make it happen in 22 days. That is when Election Day is, November the 8th. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin. Our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, we appreciate it. We'll talk to you hopefully after your reelection. Have a great day. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you very much for tuning in. So I watched quite a lot of college football over the weekend, including the University of Georgia Bulldogs 
trouncing Vanderbilt at home with my friend Mary Catherine Hamm and my other friends Sanders and Karen. That was a very fun time. We caught then the end of that wild Alabama-Tennessee game. What a final minute. Just incredible. I think that field goal kicker probably had himself a pretty good weekend for the Vols. But it was also a huge weekend in Major League Baseball, some playoff action. And, man, there were some dramatic developments, like the Houston Astros advancing to the ALCS again in an 18-inning win at Seattle. That was something. How about the San Diego Padres slaying the Dragon and beating the Dodgers in that series? The Braves, the defending champs, they're out. I saw their only playoff win in person when I was down there. All the other ones went to Philadelphia, so the Phillies are off to the NLCS. And the only missing piece of the puzzle is the Yankees or the Guardians. New York versus Cleveland, my team against a team everyone assumed they would beat. And it all comes down to Game 5 tonight in the Bronx. So sort of uh, nerve-wracking here if you're a Yankee fan. Exciting if you're a Cleveland fan, I would argue. And I've seen some people saying, oh, this is a sign that the playoffs are broken and it's not fair the way that they've set it up and there should be longer series and getting a couple days off if you're the higher seed actually doesn't help you. I'm actually sympathetic to all of those arguments. I don't think Major League Baseball has done a great job setting this all up. I think some of it should be reconsidered about what is incentivized and if they're diluting the value of the regular season. It's a fair argument. I agree with a lot of it. Also... If you're a good championship-caliber team, you win the games you have to win, period. We'll see if the Yankees can pull it off tonight and move on to the Final Four. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour returns right after this break. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Earlier today on the Guy Benson Show, we chatted with Chris Christie, former New Jersey governor, a Republican. A lot to get to with him. As usual, here's part of that exchange. The American people are not feeling that. And for him to say that at this moment, to me, almost feels like political malpractice. I don't know if he even thought through the words that he said out loud, but he said them. He sure did. And he's completely out of touch. I mean, look, that's what it shows more than anything else. You know, folks don't say stuff by mistake very often. And certainly at this point in Joe Biden's career, um, you know, when he says it, it's what he believes. It's what he feels. It's what he's trying to push. And there's not only no evidence to support it, but on top of it, it's completely out of touch with how the American people feel when they go to the supermarket and, they, and they're going to pay $6.59 for a bag of Tostitos. I mean, you know, this is out of control. Uh, people can't afford to put food on the table. They can't put, afford to put gas in the car to get to the supermarket. Uh, and they're suffering. And the president's eating ice cream and telling him everything's fine. Yeah, strong as hell. Not even like, eh, it's okay. It's a little mediocre, lukewarm these days. But we're going to get back there. Don't you worry, Jackie, or something like that. No, strong as hell. Like, triumphalism about the U.S. economy right now. I just, I can't imagine being quite that tone deaf, but I guess that's Joe Biden. And you have to imagine candidates across the country see that soundbite come out over the weekend and shudder because, I mean, unless the Republicans are brain dead, that clip will end up in some ads. Oh, there's, listen, it's a combination of joy and shuddering. If you're a Republican candidate for the House, the Senate, um, a governorship, 
or any other constitutional office, you're joyful. And if you're a Democrat, it just reinforces your instinct that you don't want him anywhere near your campaign in the last 22 days. You want to pretend you don't even know him unless you're in the bluest of blue districts. Uh, And so, you know, what we're seeing here is what's been displayed in the polls in the last week or two. But also, I can tell you, I've been out to five different states so far in the month of October, and I can tell you I feel it in talking to people. Um, They are really upset. They're angry about what the government is doing, and they feel like they're on their own. And that's a bad, bad feeling to be occurring when you're the incumbent. Yep, and when you're the party in power, it's been the ruling party. Democrats control Washington for the last two years, and the numbers are what they are. We ran through a lot of them in the last hour. And you said, I mean, I think it's almost, uh, you know, inarguably true that most Democrats in close races want nothing to do with Joe Biden. They are treating him like the plague, like, oh, no, thank you. Uh, They're asked, would you campaign with him? Like, oh, who? I, I don't know. The one exception seems to be, Later this week, John Fetterman's campaign has announced that they are going to be welcoming Joe Biden to Pennsylvania to campaign. Now, whether they're going to be appearing publicly on camera, I don't know. There's some sort of reception that they're holding together. But that race just across the river from Jersey uh, is, is certainly an interesting one. Dr. Oz has closed the gap pretty dramatically. The polls suggest he's still slightly behind, but both campaigns are acting like that race is tied. Uh, It's been interesting to see how the media is covering it, the controversy over Fetterman's health, his own record, and and statements are are pretty dramatic, and now he's bringing in Joe Biden. I just wonder what you make of what's happening in PA right now. Well, I can tell you, I was on the ground in PA last week at the um, dinner for the Chamber of Business and Industry. 3,000 people at this dinner. And let me tell you this. Dr. Oz was there. He was invited. He came and he was interviewed by the head of the chamber. Fetterman was invited and refused to show up. And I could tell you that the buzz in that room that night was why Fetterman isn't there. Statewide candidate for the United States Senate. And everybody knows it's because he's physically and mentally not up to it. And if you saw that interview on NBC, which I'm sure you did, Guy, it's, yep. it's tragic. The man you know, suffered a horrible stroke. I hope that he recovers someday, but he's not going to be recovered in time for November. And he has no business in my view, purely from a physical health perspective, put aside his awful record from a physical health perspective. He has no business being in the United States Senate. And so Joe Biden going there and shuffling up to the, uh, to the podium uh, is not going to be helping Fetterman in any way. And, and I think this race is moving that direction towards Oz for two reasons. Dr. Oz is now focusing like a laser on the issue of crime in Pennsylvania, which is rampant in the city of Philadelphia. And people are feeling it in those Philly suburbs and are worried. And John Fetterman is showing every day that he's simply not up to the job. Let's talk about New Jersey politics, you know, statewide Often tough for Republicans, not always, you know, you won there twice. And Jack Chitterelli gave him a real scare a year ago. But there are some very important House races in New Jersey this cycle, and you're starting to see the numbers move back toward Republicans. The New York Times poll today, uh, you know, real trouble ahead potentially here for Democrats. As you look at the congressional map in, in Jersey, what are the races that you're concentrating on? And, you know, those you know, East Coast, right? These races, these cl- these polls close relatively early. Which are the ones you'll be watching maybe as some national bellwethers in your state? 
There's two. Uh, Congressional District 7, Tom King Jr. It's a rematch from 2020. He lost by a couple of thousand votes to Tom Malinowski um, and, and the Democrat. I think Tom King Jr. will win this race this time. And I think if he does, you'll see that the real good Republican trend. And the one to keep your eye on as a potential surprise guy is down in Congressional District 3. Andy Kim, the Democrat, kind of a nondescript Pelosi rubber stamping Democrat against the young uh, entrepreneur Bob Keeley from the Viking Yacht Company. They're putting some of his own money into the race and has run a very aggressive race, again, on the issue of crime and, and how difficult the crime situation has become, not only in New Jersey, but across the country. And then one I would say to you to look from outside of New Jersey, I'm going to be watching closely. I campaigned there last week. Alan Fung in the 2nd Congressional District in Rhode Island. Yeah. Boston Globe poll last week shows him up by eight points. Um, I think this is a huge one. And to have a Rhode Island Republican congressman will tell you a lot about what the trend is in this country. My full interview with Chris Christie, New Jersey's former Republican governor, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, The Whole Show, every day on demand, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Netflix has a brand new hit viral sensation show. It's a seven-part series, loosely, I will say, based on a true story. Here at the team, it turns out, just separately without coordinating, we've all been watching it, and we'll discuss on the home stretch next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. A couple debates coming up this evening. Brian Kemp, Stacey Abrams down in Georgia. J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan going at it again tonight in Ohio. Mike Lee and Evan McMullen in Utah. Those are all this evening. Senate debate in Florida is tomorrow. And another gubernatorial debate in Oregon coming up Wednesday. That's one where the Republicans really have a shot at winning. We'll keep an eye on all of those and all of the races out there as we do every day. Hardcore politics for the next 22 days heading into the midterm elections. If you miss an episode, you miss a lot. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. Catch me tonight on Kennedy on Fox Business Network. We're going to be talking about a number of the big races in the country this evening. Myself and the great lady. Don't miss that. Just after 7 p.m. Eastern again, that's FBN. Before we get to the topic that I teased before the break, I have to confess something to the audience and specifically to producer Christine. So on Saturday night, as I mentioned earlier in the hour, I was in Athens, Georgia, watching the UGA game against Vanderbilt. Northwestern was off. We had a bye week, so blessedly we couldn't lose. It has not been going well. So watched a winning team actually take care of business easily. Vanderbilt actually reminded me quite a bit of my own team, watching how that game played out. In any case, after the game, we'd been tailgating throughout the day. We caught the end of the Alabama-Tennessee conclusion, and then we were going to head back home to our friend's house. We were all exhausted, kind of hungry, didn't really want to do much, didn't want to go anywhere. So it was suggested, how about pizza? I said, okay, that sounds great. We'll pick it up on the way home, no problem. So I was going to call in the order to one of their local places down there, and we ended up ordering two pies, and on one of them, I'm just going to say I got outvoted. And so, yes, on one of these pizzas, 
there was pineapple, and I paid for it, and I even had some of it. Now, was it my favorite? No. Was I hungry where I was like, oh, you know, I'll scarf down a slice of this? Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's just not, in my mind, really pizza. But the fact that I had two good friends in the car requesting pineapple on pizza was extremely disturbing to me. And, Christine, I just wanted you to have the satisfaction to know that that occurred. I am smiling from ear to ear right now. I knew the minute you said food confession, it was going to be pineapple on pizza. So now you have your best friend who loves it and your other, like, two eh, so-so friends that love it. I mean, just get on board. Now we just got to get YY and Dan Dan. No, it's, I'm not on board. I had it. Like, it's not inedible. It's just not something not. that I would really want to go out of my way to have. But I was not going to be the one to pull rank. I was in no position to do so and say, no, you guys like this, so we're not ordering it. So anyway, I just needed to put that out there into the world. The other thing that we were talking about in our text message chain earlier today before our planning call, I think, did you get it rolling, I think, Christine, and then Dan mentioned it as well. I'm not sure if Wyatt has gotten on board yet, but there's a show on Netflix called The Watcher, and... Last night, Adam and I were having dinner. We were watching the latest episode of The Great British Bake Off. And then it sort of popped up as a preview, this show. And we watched the trailer, and we looked at each other and said, well, I think we need to watch this now. It looks like a psychological thriller. So we binge-watched about half of the series last night. And we're going to try to make some more headway tonight. And... About midway through the first episode, because I had seen they put up on the screen this based on a true story, then I realized I had read a long article about this, and it was at least similar enough where I sort of said maybe this is where they've inspired the plot line and sort of the fictional series here. So I went back and I found the article, skimmed back through it and said, yeah, this was it. It seems like they've taken massive creative liberties to turn this into a much bigger, like, you know, scary type thing with a lot of details that bear no resemblance to what happened in real life. But it is at least rooted in something that really did happen in a town called Westfield, New Jersey, a fairly well-to-do suburban New Jersey town outside New York City. There was a big house purchased by a couple, and right before the couple was scheduled to move in and the family— these mysterious letters started showing up that were sort of threatening and menacing to the family and signed the watcher. Someone was watching the house, some details about the family in the house that were sort of disturbing. The previous owner said they had not gotten these letters until they got one at the very, very end around or after the sale. And then the letters really started piling up for the new family. They were too scared to move in. They ended up never moving in in real life. And there was a big mystery who'd done it who was sending these letters and why. And there are a bunch of theories as to who might be responsible for that. I believe in real life the mystery remains unresolved. This show, The Watcher on Netflix, takes that kernel of a true story and turns it into something a lot more dramatic and scary. So we're sort of plowing through it. I would say I'm enjoying it for the most part. Dan, you were a thumbs up on this one, right? Yeah, I liked it a lot. This is right up my alley. I love kind of like the mystery stories, and I love Bobby Cannavale and Naomi Watts as actors. So I really loved it. I thought it was really good, pretty well done, and scary as heck. 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a little bit creepy from time to time. And they introduce a bunch of potential culprits. And you're kind of suspicious of almost everyone, at least you know, speaking for myself as I'm three episodes in. Dan, without any spoilers, do they resolve it at the end? Without any spoilers, um, it gets resolved in certain ways, but not really. So, no. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Because yeah. in real life, my understanding is no actual resolution. We'll see what they come up with in this Netflix version. Christine, you also have watched this, but you are not a fan of it. No, I watched it this weekend. I'm about five episodes in. We watched uh, Bobby and my in-laws came down from Boston this weekend, so we all watched it. And I don't know. We just, all of us had a consensus that it was not well done. The acting seemed fake. I don't, it just didn't seem real. I felt like the main character was the wrong guy for this series. And I just, I just it's not even scary to me, which is shocking because I'm terrified of everything. See, I kind of don't really believe that. I feel like this is your coping mechanism to say, oh, it's so unrealistic because deep down, Cookie's like, I'm never buying a house again because there's going to be a watcher and the watcher's going to terrorize my family and send me to an insane asylum. That's sort of how I'm picturing your response, your reaction. You're playing it cool for the radio. Like, oh, no, I'm not scared at all. But tonight at home, you'll be like in the fetal position, rocking back and forth as you go out to check your mailbox, terrified that there's a watcher. No, no. <laughs> and by the way, this is very, very close to me. Um, I dare I say the town next door to me. So, uh, no, did I, not I'm not buying it. And I'm not scared. Didn't okay. freak me out at all. So I have a new theory. You said this town is very close to where you live? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very. Maybe you're not scared of the watcher because you know who the watcher is, let's say. You are Are the watcher. Are you accusing me of being the watcher? Well, you're scared of everything. This is the one thing on planet Earth, apparently, you're not scared of. The thing happened in a town right next to you. You are a trained espionage agent, as we've established from your Soviet days. It goes back to a long callback to a previous inside joke. Maybe you, for the first time in life, aren't anxious about something because you are fully confident there isn't really a threat to you because you are the threat. Guy, I'm not even going to answer. I'm not even going to entertain any of this, but hmm. I'm just saying. It's not you a denial. Imagine... Just for the record, ladies and gentlemen, let the record reflect, Your Honor. That was not a denial. Go on. I'm just saying that I think this – I don't even believe in the real watcher. Like, I think that whole thing was a hoax. I read many stories about this, and some of them say that the, the owners did it because they wanted out of the deal. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't believe Many people are saying and- you, would, you would love for people to believe that. Oh, yeah, the homeowners did it to themselves. It certainly wasn't a neighboring town individual who was doing this for whatever reason she might have. Yeah. What do you think? I go there and watch hmm. houses? And, yeah. I mean, when would I have time? I'm, very, I'm a very busy gal. Uh, are you? I mean, and, and have you been for these many years? I mean, this goes back years. I just think there's some interesting circumstantial evidence. I'm not making any accusations, surely. But I think based on this, I mean, talk about many people saying, I think there's probably some folks now out there in the audience who have some doubts. 
So I, I, I'm glad that we had this conversation. I'm glad that we talked about this show. I think we may have solved a mystery here, a pop-culturally relevant mystery. And, of course, it all traces back, allegedly, to producer Christine. And with that, we're out of time. So I'm sorry. I wish you could respond, but I, you know, I think we've put a bow on this one. Back here tomorrow for more of The Guy Benson Show, same time, same place. On with Kennedy tonight on the TV side in the 7 p.m. hour. FBN, see you there. Talk to you then. Have a great night. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.